Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. They say it takes a village to raise a child. I'm Catherine Ryan, and here we draw on my conversations with experts on 9 to Noon to help you navigate family life. How can parents help their teenagers? Do not make bad decisions in the heat of the moment. Teenagers often do things that seem stupid, but we now know why. The parts of the brain that control decision-making don't fully develop until about the mid-twenties. So how can parents help their teenagers make good decisions in a cold situation before they get caught up in the heat of the moment? Lecturer in psychology and criminology at Edith Cowan University in Perth, Dr James McHugh, is interested in how parents and teens can minimise potential risks and use mistakes as opportunities to learn. James is with us from Perth. Lovely to talk to you. Good morning. We're really talking about neuroscience here and the application of neuroscience to psychology in some ways. Remind us what is happening to the brain, as we said, pretty much all the way through to the mid-20s. What's going on there? Well, it's a really interesting picture because what we now know from more recent neuroscience research is that the brain develops in a much more protracted or or long-term way. So the brain develops from the back to the front. So the last parts of the brain to develop are the prefrontal cortex, and it's that frontal area of the brain that controls how we make decisions. It controls our ability to control our impulses, to delay gratification, and to engage in consequential thinking. That ability to think a few steps ahead about what a decision could potentially result in. This applies or is experienced how by the teen put in a certain situation what is the process their brain is going through that might be a bit different from someone that bit much more mature so exactly as you pointed to it depends on the situation so where you've got um, a teenager that's in a, a situation where there's high levels of arousal where there's high levels of stress or anxiety maybe peer pressure they're more likely to behave impulsively they're less likely to think through the consequences of their actions they're going to be really emotional decision makers whereas as adults we've got that ability to recognize what's going on out in our emotional world but then make more reasoned rational choices around the situation we're in. There's something else that occurs to me is perhaps allied. It's not so much the biological stuff, but that question that you, or that question we raised over over learning from experience. By the time you're in adulthood, are you not only more capable of envisaging what a consequence might be, but you've simply had the experience more often and you're looking ahead and, quote, seeing where something is heading? Absolutely. So what we know is through life experience, we accumulate wisdom. And because of our past um, choices, our past mistakes even, we know what's likely to happen. So the difficulty for teenagers is it's, it, they're quite often in new situations. Their brains are developing at a time where we're typically introducing them to more social responsibilities, to you know the decisions around driving, to decisions related to 
<clears throat> decisions related to um, sexual consent, decisions related to voting. And as soon as we start doing that, their worlds become more complex and the responsibilities become more complex. And so the, the implications of that are more complex. And this is all at a time when the brain is actually still developing. We are asking a lot of them at a time where a lot is happening physically as well. But as you say, they're getting all these new responsibilities in pretty short order. And is it taxing on the brain to think through and process and file away all of those things? Is that something else we need to be aware of? Yeah, look, I think it is. I think it's because what the brain is trying to do is encounter these new situations and, and deal with quite new emotional consequences of them. At the same time, it's tried to process reasonable decisions, decisions that probably they know in, in, a, in the cold light of day they should make, but they don't have that um, maturity yet to, to balance their, um, their social decision-making against probably what's more logical decision-making. And it's, it's that combination of things that we that we call psychosocial maturity. Just before we talk about the hot and cold cognition that we're coming to, there's also mm. the so-called red mist, and adults will experience this as well. It comes back to, to the part of the brain that is activated. But it's those few seconds where you literally see red, where all of us are at a moment where we're going to do something um, rash or say something rash. Is this part of the picture as well? Yeah, it is part of the picture. And it's really about how we learn to, um, I suppose, to think before we act, how we learn to actually just take a couple of seconds before we actually start to respond to a situation. And adults typically, not all adults, but adults typically do have a better ability to do it. How do you help parents then begin to have... Um communications or experiences where they can help their teen work through this. What are some of the situations where we could help them uh, think cold rather than think hot? Yeah. So, look, I think the, the number one thing for parents to remember is um, in these sorts of situations, you know, the, what we know with, with neuroscience is it may, it's not the parent's fault. This is a very normative developmental thing that teenagers go through and they're going to make silly decisions. So it's about expecting that and anticipating it. There's no cure for this. We can't make the brain develop any faster. But what parents can do is educate their, their young people about what's going on with their bodies. You know, we quite often do it around puberty, but we don't do it so much around the brain. And this isn't about giving teenagers and young people a free pass. It's about teaching them responsibility and modeling that for them. So if you know, for example, that your teenager is about to go off to a party, a 16th birthday party, well, as adults, we've been to 16th birthday parties and a range of other birthday parties, and we know the sorts of things that can happen, the sorts of choices that people will get the sorts of sometimes antisocial behaviour that can happen, sometimes the shenanigans that can go on. And it's about having conversations with your teenager around, well, what are they expecting? If they haven't been in that situation before, they don't necessarily know what to expect. And before they get into that situation where there's high levels of arousal, where there's those hot situations, it's about them being able to think through, well, what would you do? So almost scenario testing, the same way we would with you know risk management. If, if a situation was to occur, what do you think you would do you strategize in advance and and how far in advance by the way as they're walking out the door or is it something you do much sooner <laughs> yeah look it's something you do much 
much sooner. And usually, um, definitely not as they're walking out the door, because by that stage, all of their uh, emotions have started to kick in. You've got the anticipation of who they're going with, the excitement, maybe some anxiety, maybe some concerns about whether I'm wearing the right outfit and whether I'm going to fit in and say the right things. So really, by that stage, mum and dad's voice is completely gone. It's just, that's just into the fog in the back of their mind. So it needs to be more in the days, the, the week or weeks leading up to it, where it's it's just about having general conversations. It's about taking an interest in what your teenager is doing. So not doing a Spanish inquisition of who's going to be there and what time you're going to be home. You know, interrogations will shut people down, including teenagers. It's about taking an interest in terms of, you know, what are you expecting? What do you think it's going to be like? What do you think you're going to do? And try to have some nice open-ended questions to explore what your teenager is thinking about what's coming up. Because because then you can pose some suggestions about, you know, that sounds really interesting. What do you think would happen if X were to occur? How do you think you would respond? How would you handle it? What do you do with the responses? I'm interested in some of the responses that you get when instead of launching straight in with your advice on what to do, you ask them what sorts of responses might you typically get? So you might get, you might actually find that if you've got um, more of a, a sheltered teenager, that actually they they don't really know what to expect, and so that provides an opportunity to put out some suggestions that, you know, when you've been to parties, this is the sort of stuff that's happened, and and what, how do they think they would respond to that? Sometimes they'll say things of, you know, there's probably going to be alcohol there. Sometimes teenagers are brutally honest, and then it's a question of, you know, rather than jumping in with, well, I hope you're not going to drink. It's about trying to control that automatic parental response to be able to say, well, what do you think you're going to do if there is alcohol there? And that's where it's going to come down to as a family, and this is a very individual choice, as a family, what are the rules? What are the things that you're prepared to negotiate on as your teenager starts to experiment with becoming more and more independent? And what are the things that in your family are non-negotiable? How do you have that conversation? Because there may be a gap between what you would ideally want and what your teen is going to comply with, quite frankly. So how do you work through what the rules are going to be in a way that gets you the best outcome? So this is about having those conversations in those cold situations. So, you know, if you're around the dinner table, if you are, you know, preparing the dinner and you can do that with the young person or you're taking them to the shops, having some family time, it's good to be able to think about and and to even sometimes use as a springboard, you know, I know that you are starting to get older now I know that you're wanting more independence but I think as a family we need to think about how you do that and what's what's going to work for you but what's going to work for us and there will be in some instances a chasm between what the teenager wants to do and what the parent wants to do and the messages really need to be around we're not wanting to hold you back but we want to make sure you're safe because we know that teenagers haven't got that wisdom of the things that they're going to encounter. So we want to try and put some safety measures around them. And so if the teenager has got the maturity to actually be involved in some of those discussions and even set some rules, you know, okay, if there's going to be a curfew, for example, well, what time does does the teenager think is reasonable? And then you can negotiate around that. So it might be that, you know, the parents want a, a much stricter view around that. But it might be that you can also have some flexibility around what that is, depending on where they're going or who they're with. And what that does is 
if the teenager's been involved in the conversations, then if they do make decisions that step outside of those rules, it's not mum and dad's rules that they're breaking. It's actually their rules that they're breaking. So there's a sense of responsibility to mum and dad, but there's also a sense of responsibility to self here. So what that does is, you know, as adults, we don't have other people imposing lots of rules on us. Within our life, we have to impose rules on ourselves. And it's, it's trying to create that independent, responsible and resilient individual. They're good negotiators, teens, right? So that's a way of getting some of what you want or much of what you want. Yes, you can set a rule, but again, what you're seeking is two things. You, you want it complied with. And second, as you say, you're trying to develop a muscle where the teen learn, is learning self-regulation. Absolutely. And look, the thing with teenagers is they're fairness fanatics. They will point out, you know, if their brother or sister got an extra five minutes on the Xbox to them. So they're really aware of rules and fairness. And so in some ways, they're actually quite good at setting rules for themselves. And what it does is it creates clarity around what the expectations are. And so it gives the parents, other than doing the I'm really disappointed in you and feeling like they have to almost parent them like children again when they make silly decisions it's it creates that springboard to have adult discussions around okay you went to this party you actually got drunk we kind of talked about you not really actually drinking alcohol when you were out so that's a rule that you had set for yourself so what are we going to do around this what are we going to do from here and where does that conversation go from there yeah, so the conversation might go around, you know, what does the teenager think is is a fair penalty? Um, but beyond the consequences of it, beyond the punishment, it, it allows for discussions around, you know, this was a rule you imposed on yourself. There were reasons why you wanted to do that. What was it in that situation that led you to break your own rule? What was it in that situation that led you to drink? So what they can start to identify is those, those factors in a hot situation that are likely to um, cause them to make silly decisions. So it could be around, well, all of my friends were doing it or I didn't want to feel left out or I felt silly if I wasn't going to do it. So you can actually start to then have conversations with your teenager that are more meaningful around, well, what does it mean to get accepted? What does it mean, you know, are these good friends for you? You know, should friends really make you feel that you've got to do something that you don't want to do? It allows you to have other discussions beyond you're grounded for two weeks and, and you have to empty the dishwasher every day. So the mistakes will happen and how you deal with the mistake can either be something that, as we said, develops that self-regulating muscle or uh, if it goes badly can have what effect, just the team just shutting down and thinking, right, I'm just going to manage my way through this conversation and out of it. Absolutely. And that's that's the key. I think there's a role for parents to, you know, the, the parent-child relationship changes as the child gets older. And there's a there's a role for parents to almost move into that coach or mentor way of parenting because we know that kids are going to make silly decisions. We all made silly decisions as teenagers. And so if 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 we can remove some of the judgment from it, because teenagers are already judging themselves. They judge themselves on how they look, how they talk, how they walk, they judge themselves against other people. So Adding another layer of judgment isn't always helpful and being really punitive can sometimes cause the teenager to just retreat inside themselves. And then the lesson related to the mistake is completely lost. The value of, you know, we, we know that sometimes our greatest learning in life is from our mistakes, but it's only if we debrief afterwards and work out where our choices went wrong that we actually do that learning. Most teens will get themselves in some sort of a situation and probably several times, but if you've got someone who is, um, repeat offend is the wrong phrase, but you know what I mean, is, is, <laughs> yeah. is, is constantly breaching stuff that you believe 
makes things unsafe for them. What what is going on there, um, and and how do you handle it when you don't feel like you're in a normal situation, but you've got someone who's got bigger issues, or you're really you're really worried about about the risks. Yeah, so a teenager that's that's repeatedly making risky decisions and putting themselves in harm's way, you know, all of the strategies that I've mentioned so far in terms of trying to have more meaningful conversations are, are still going to be really useful because if if the response from, from mum and dad is really punitive, sometimes kids just get oppositional. Sometimes teenagers will just push against the boundaries because they're teenagers and they're just going to learn things the hard way. Sometimes it can also point to deeper underlying issues. And and it may be that if there's repeatedly um, silly situations or silly decisions that, that really put the young person at risk, you know, it might be that there's other stuff going on for them. It could be around self-esteem or anxiety, um, mood issues, um, could be around general recklessness or if they've got themselves into a situation where maybe they're exposed to to drugs and alcohol so it may be if if there's really serious stuff going stuff going on and trying different approaches isn't working and the well-being of the young person is at risk it might be about maybe seeking professional help or or trying to get the young person to open up to to someone in in a professional setting i mean the counter argument to this is that if you've got a child who never pushes any boundaries or, or does anything, they're, they're, as we said, they're missing out on a, on a um, well, I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't, shouldn't speak in such a sweeping manner. I guess what we're saying is what they are going through at this stage is vitally important to their ability to self-manage later in life, right? Uh, so, yeah. so, so, so just get on the ride and <laughs> stay and yes. stay on the ride. Yeah, yeah, because it's about building resilient adults. And we only build resilience through adversity. And we get to adversity by making silly decisions where we can look back and go, I should have done that differently. And we're not going to change the brain any faster. It's just going to be a case of knowing that, yep, it's likely. I suppose the same way a toddler, when they're learning to walk, we expect them to fall over and graze their knee lots of times because they're unstable on their feet and they're still learning how to do it. Well, this is the equivalent just in teenage years and it's around decision-making and navigating more complex social situations. I mean, social situations that are more complex than a six-year-old would have or a 10-year-old would have. So it is about getting on that ride and it's about remembering that you know, if we can minimise the harm by having discussions early about what teenagers can anticipate, then potentially we, we minimise the risk, we minimise the severity of the silly decision. But if they do make small silly decisions, it's about how we can use those as learning opportunities. And it's not about giving them a free pass. Part of being resilient is also about learning responsibility. And so there are going to be consequences to actions. And that could be mum and dad being disappointed, or it could be foregoing particular privileges, because actually it's about learning the con- sometimes the social consequence of I've made a silly decision and now I'm embarrassed with my friends and I'm going to have to go and apologise to them is actually a pretty big consequence too. So it's just recognising where they're at socially, but also recognising that, you know, because of brain development, they are likely to make silly decisions. It's not that mum and dad are doing anything wrong. It's just working out how to navigate or help the young person to navigate their way through it. Thank you. Dr. James McHugh is a lecturer in psychology and criminology at Edith Cowan University in Perth. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.